Just a heads up that in this podcast, you'll hear young people talking about what it was like for them when their mental health wasn't at its best. If you or someone you know needs support, visit headspace.org.au, where there are heaps of different ways to connect with someone who can listen, answer your questions and help. Plus, there's a big list of other services you could try, like Lifeline or Kids Helpline, in our show notes. The big thing is when you say no over and over again or you don't turn up, then people stop asking and then you start to question like, oh, well, do they want to hang out with me? Do they not want to hang out with me? And for a while there it was hard to realise like that I'd done that to myself by um, not putting myself out there and not wanting to do things um, that people just decided not to ask because they knew the answer was going to be no anyway. So instead of putting me in a position where I had to make an excuse or had to say no, they'd realistically be trying to help me by not asking me, but then it made you feel even worse because you were getting asked to do things. Yep. It's like we can't win. And that's whether you're the one saying no and making up the excuses or you're the one doing the asking until you're not. If you've ever wondered what to write back to that message or if inviting someone is the right thing to do, then get ready for some familiar feelings. In this episode of Get Psyched, we find out about those day-to-day things that can just become too hard. Hi, my name is Penny Terry and I'm working with Headspace Launceston, a group of young people and some clinicians to help us all understand how our minds work, particularly when our mental health isn't as good as it could be. You know you have to get out of bed and brush your teeth, but some things just seem like a big effort, um, particularly like personal hygiene like small things just build up to be a big task so thinking you've got to get out of bed you've got to brush your teeth you've got to get dressed you've got to brush your hair like everything just builds up to a big mountain and that's before you've even got out of bed for the day now this is something we've heard about right I feel like we've been told somewhere that one of the things to look out for when people aren't doing their best is that they'll start to neglect their personal hygiene. But what I hadn't thought about was the practicalities of that, of how it becomes a thing. But Liz, she knows. Just so many little things that build up and people just don't understand like why why you why would you not brush your teeth why would you be worried someone's going to be you know watching you and do something differently but to me like it it's a big thing and all those small things throughout the day build up and like the day can be overwhelming before it's even started do you remember one particular time where you were feeling like that and perhaps you you got a response from someone that just didn't help Yeah, it's not even like a bad response, but I know like moving in um, to a new household with new people and like brushing my teeth and someone looked at me and was like, why do you do it like that? Like, that's not how I do it. And then I was like, oh shit, like, am I doing it wrong? Like, 
oh my God. And then it just made me so self-conscious that I didn't want to do it. And then you think about not brushing your teeth and then you feel the consequences of that. And you just feel like you're not going to win in any circumstance. And you'll say to someone, oh, I don't want to brush my teeth. And they're like, ew, that's disgusting. And you're like, well, yeah, it is. But it's hard for other people to understand that the reason that you're so worried about that is a whole mountain of things. It's because you feel like you're being judged. You feel like you're doing things wrong. But to just turn around to someone and say, oh, I don't want to brush my teeth because I feel like I'm going to get judged. They're like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) seriously. Yeah, seriously. As if getting up in the morning isn't hard enough. And now Lisa's got me thinking about all those things that can be going on for some people before they even get out of bed. And then if they do and you get through those things, there are more things. That whole aspect of just stepping outside my door was a, a big enough issue as it is, let alone getting up, okay, what, what am I meant to be doing? Like, what am I um, going to do? Yeah, I need to brush my teeth, have a shower and that sort of thing. But then what, like, do I feel like I should go out and even talk to anyone today? The day-to-day activities like going out, if I need to go to the shop, it was a hassle. Like, I'd worry about if I asked where something was, like, they might bring up... Um, different things like or say something negative even though it wasn't the case yeah just everything was a hassle so even talking to my mum just saying hey that was a big enough hassle and yeah this is Luke talking about how the day-to-day stuff just became too hard for him and I know you know it's different for everyone here's how it was for Ella Very few times have I ever just stayed in my room and refused to leave the house. I wanted to stay home, but the stress of not going to school and not getting work done was far worse. So it was like, how do I cope at, like, how do I function on a face level? How do I get through the work that I need to get through and respond to a teacher's question and be around my classmates while I'm having like all of this just like emotions and the feeling of wanting to like just run as fast as I can away from everyone that fight or flight if you I've gone and frozen like how how the heck do I get myself out of this frozen moment enough that I can bend my head down so it at minimum looks like I'm reading what I'm meant to be reading so being able to on the face surface be like oh yes I know the answer to that miss well inside going oh why did you ask me why did you ask me you know that this is not something I like doing you got that picture in your head of Ella in her classroom frozen for Shana getting to school was one of her challenges I would feel anxious on the bus to the point that I would want the bus to turn around and take me home or just get off so I can walk home um and yeah, at school, I would feel so anxious that I would feel sick and need to go home. And so, I, yeah, that was one of my biggest struggles in the beginning, as well as just doing my chores at home. I would just isolate myself in my room and not want to socialise with anyone, not even my family. I was pretty like outgoing with my family and friends and stuff but after I started going downhill I was very anxious just to even talk to my family go to 
any family outings or do anything with my friends, I would say yes and then say no. I just didn't want to leave the house. How would you ever explain or did you feel pressure to explain why you weren't doing these things? Some of the times I did feel kind of pressured but a lot of the times I didn't really get asked what was going on. If you did, what what did you tell them? I'll just say that I was sick. I never went into detail about what was really going on. I just, yeah, told them that I was sick. What was the worry about telling them what was going on, what was happening? I just didn't want them to worry about me and I didn't want to put, make them act differently around me or act as if, like, I'm timid and need, you know, that they need to give me space or anything like that. I want them to act normal and trying to, so I could, trying to get myself out of that. Is this the bit where we find ourselves sort of holding our breath as we think back to how we've acted and what we've said in the past? Well... Let's get into that conversation, starting with Liz. So if people did ask you what's going on, why aren't you doing the things you normally do, how did you answer that? Well, most of the time I was just like, oh, you know, like I've got other stuff going on, can't be bothered, like just very closed answer stuff. Like I didn't want to promote any sort of discussion. Um, Generally got quite annoyed, quite frustrated with people, very short um, and then, you know, you just start to feel a bit shit about yourself because you're treating others poorly because you just want to avoid any sort of questioning about what's going on in your life. Do you think there's anything they could have said that would have been okay? I think it's, yeah, a bit of a catch-22. Like you want them to say things and then they say it and then you don't know how to respond and you're like, oh, maybe this is not what I want. And you just kind of get yourself into a position where anything that happens, you just feel as though it's not what you thought it was going to be. But like there's definitely stages where people will say the right thing and it'll help, but I don't think that it was planned in any way. Um, Sometimes, you know, I was having better days than others. So if someone had said the same thing to me three days in a row, I probably would have had three different reactions. So yeah, it's just a bit of persistence and trial and error and hoping for the best. Luke, how about for you, this idea of not knowing what to say when they did ask questions? With any questions related to how I was feeling at the time, I would definitely neglect them completely. Um, I just would either just walk away or just change the topic and just hopefully go from there. Um, I put on a a somewhat brave face um, most of my life, so people might have not guessed that I had issues going on, but we seem to tend to do that. People that actually have issues, um, definitely younger people, we don't seem to worry about others as much. Um, We just want to get on with our life and get through school and, and just do all that sort of stuff. You mentioned they're doing some not great things um, when you're not feeling great. Have you got any examples of what kind of not great things? Um, 
not great things like not being the best sister I can be, particularly particularly to my younger sister, or just kind of completely skipping things because of what I do outside of school. I quite often get home late and will eat by myself and if I don't feel like eating the particular food, like not because I'm feeling necessarily bad about my body, it's just I don't feel like eating because I feel flat and crap and eating's not going to help that. Like I'll sit there at the table, maybe move a few things around on my plate, give the illusion of eating things, hide the peas under the potatoes and then go and put it into like rubbish or into a rock and serve for somebody else and be like, oh, I was, couldn't eat it all, it was really good, thanks. Well, that's been a big 12 minutes. And look, as I've been listening, I've been picturing so many things in my brain. Even Ella, sitting at her table, hiding the peas. Speaking of picturing things, it's that time of the podcast where we check in with the clinicians, starting with Mark Vandenenden, who's got a great thing for us to picture to help us understand what our brains might be seeing when the day-to-day things become too hard. One of the analogies given is um, if if you cup your hands in front of your face and you imagine that that's your anxiety and you put your hands right in front of your eyes, then all you can see is your hands. You can't see your friends, you can't see the sky, you can't see you know, what's around you. you, you can't look at all the things that are important. All you can see and all you can experience is your anxiety. Well, there's, there's a two-step process in here. You know, one is to kind of um, drop the anchor in the emotional storm, which is really about acknowledging the thoughts and feelings that are there, that guest house analogy, like, OK, here's anxiety, Hello, anxiety, you know, there's, there's plenty of room for you in my mind, you know, in this guest house that is my mind. And we tune into what's happening in the here and now. So we, we look around and see what we can see. We engage our ears and we find out what, you know, what is around to be heard. We engage our body. You know, what can I feel with my body? We take a few deep breaths. And in that way, we can start to recenter ourselves. Anxiety is usually a future-driven response. So if we bring our mind out of the future and come back into the present moment and centre ourselves and take a few deep breaths and calm our mind, that will help us to at least create a bit more space, You know, the possibility of opening up to what's around us. And, and that goes into the next step, is tune into the people that are in front of you. you know, look at how they're sitting, you know, watch their eyes, listen to what they're saying. You know, there's every chance you'll understand that, you know, most of us are in the same boat. Most of us have days where we're feeling in the very similar way to what we're feeling. Are we stepping into the the world of mindfulness here? Absolutely. Mindfulness is very much about paying attention on purpose to what the mind is doing and recognising what happens when we're on autopilot. The, um, The program kicks in and the habits start going through the familiar routines If we go to that autopilot, we're going to have to sort of reprogram um, that program that runs. And I'd imagine that that's not always easy for some people. That can be quite quite an experience to reprogram. You do have to make an effort. Um, We we do know from um, 
neuroplasticity, the field of neuroplasticity is now telling us that the brain is capable of immense change. And like any new skill, it does take a while to um, fire and wire new pathways and create new ways of thinking and behaving and and, um, speaking. There was a study done that um, Dr Joe Dispenza, you'll find him on YouTube, um, cited in in relation to um, neuroplasticity. He did an experiment where there were two groups of people. The focus was on the piano. Um, Group A actually went through the scales and and learning um, mechanically, using their hands, how to play the piano. Group B simply visualised themselves playing the piano in exactly the same way that Group A were doing. When their um, neuroplasticity, so the neurons that were fired and wired together, were um, measured, there was very little difference between the two. So visualising ourselves succeeding in um, staying calm and centred when we're experiencing anxiety is preparing the brain, is priming the brain brain to, um, to manage anxiety. So what do you think? What could we rehearse mentally? whether it's the piano or relearning to walk out the front door. And you know what else I'm wondering? When we are feeling stressed, worried, anxious, where is it happening in our brains? And what can that mean for what we think about our brain? Do you know, the other thing that anxiety does is it... um this funny part of your brain called executive functioning which is about problem solving concentrating planning all that stuff the threat system in your mind all the blood is pumping around there in this in the central part of your brain so that executive functioning or that prefrontal lobe doesn't get as much blood and I have had so many young people see me and say I thought I was really dumb I thought I was just just not clever and actually, it's because they're sitting in this anxiety all day, every day. And they're often really, really clever. And I just, my heart breaks when I hear those stories because I think, gosh, it's affected your learning for such a long time um, or even for a short period of time. And they've, they've created a really self-loathing narrative about their intelligence. Um, and then when I, I do my first sort of education about what anxiety is and how it affects your brain and functioning, and there's this, oh, my goodness, that's why I couldn't concentrate in science or I couldn't hold those maths problems in my mind or, you know. Well, no, I did not know. I don't know if I was prepared for that answer. And I'm wondering who you're thinking about now that you've heard it. The voice you're hearing is clinician Caroline Thane, and as usual, I had heaps more questions. How do we get used to the stuff that go, that's going on in our mind not being comfortable <laughs> and, and being okay with that? I think acceptance. Now, acceptance is a really complicated kind of thing. It's um, not about like a passive rolling over. I kind of think of a dog when I think about it, like a rolling onto my back and going, okay, life, give me whatever you've got. Um, it's like a, it, it's an active stance. So it's sort of a stepping towards the discomfort and giving it permission to be there. But it's hard. It's really hard. Discomfort. And I think um, as humans... We are used to being able to make ourselves comfortable. For example, um, this room was cold this morning and I put the heater on because I didn't want to be cold. <laughs> and I think we have this um, 
this idea that we can do that with uncomfortable emotion. Well, I will avoid that situation over there because I don't want to feel uncomfortable, so I won't go. Um, But that's not actually the answer. And actually part of, I suppose, the human um, disposition is that we have all these emotions. Some are comfy and lovely. Some are really uncomfy. Um, And we have to learn how to manage all of them. The other really helpful strategy is to think about emotions as not good or bad and that some are, as I said before, comfortable and some are more uncomfortable. So it gives it that changes the narrative of we can't have these ones over here that are uncomfortable. It gives you permission to have them and and learn how to then manage them as they pop up. And almost expect them. Yeah, totally. It's part of, you know, I, it's funny. Um, I still have people who say to me, I don't get stressed. And I'll say to them, "Mm, actually you do, because it's part of the old human condition. Of course you get stressed. Um, but what that actually tells me is, Ooh, I think you try and avoid stress perhaps. And it's tricky for you to sit in stress how quickly can these unhelpful thoughts or the, the roundabout thoughts start to take over? So we can have an acute stressor occur like right now, like the fire alarm might go off and you and I are like, whoa, what's going on? Ick. Um, and then our threat systems light up in our brain. So it can happen really fast. Or, you know, the sneaky stress is that cumulative build, like that snowball. So one thing might be a bit blah and then something else happens and then all, and it's just like this slow building. Um, we often talk to young people about um, stress cups and we all have our own cup, if you like. And we can carry so much stress, day-to-day stress, getting to work or school on time, you know, that can be a bit stressful. So day-to-day worries and then we might have stresses in our family or our friends. So it sort of can be slowly building up in our cup and then all of a sudden the last thing will happen like, um, I don't know, a teacher might tell me my assignment was terrible and then all of a sudden my cup has overflowed and all of a sudden I am a mess and it looks like I'm just reacting to the last thing, so about my assignment and people will be thinking, why have you had such an acute reaction to that assignment? It's not Overreacting. Yeah, it's not that bad. But actually when you slow down um, and you look at your whole stress cup, you've been holding a lot of stress. So that's why it's really important for anybody, regardless of your age and stage, to be slowed down enough through periods of your day to think about your feelings and thoughts and think about um, what are the day-to-day ways that you just cope. Um, If we have healthy coping strategies that we do every day, it will actually reduce um, the likelihood of our cup overflowing. How common is the battle between young people and their supporters, whoever that might be, on trying to get them to get out of their room, um, get out of bed, get out of the house, go to school, go to work or whatever it might be, get out in your social group. And I wonder how tricky that is, that you're trying to encourage someone and they're saying, no, I don't want to. And am I stepping into territory that's actually I'm doing things that aren't helpful for them? What's going on there? I think what you are talking about is also the stage where adolescents start to step away from their parents or carers and they're becoming their own person. Um, 
and it's a funny term called individuating. Um, and essentially what that's about is, yeah, stepping back from, from carers and loved ones and saying, I know who I am, I can live my life how I want to. And I know all the answers, all right? So don't tell me because I know them all. <laughs> um, but it's this really fine line, I suppose, in, in um, encouraging young people to be independent and making choices, but then also stepping in when things are not looking great. So if your young person at home is spending way too much time on their computer in their bedroom and isolating, um, but still respecting their independence. And I think, you know, it's not uncommon for us to get a lot of calls from parents saying oh my goodness I don't know how to help my young person I can see that the wheels are falling off they're just not interested um that's really that can be really tough to navigate how how do you do that because if your child or the young person in your life had a migraine or a a broken foot um you'd know how to set up that environment to help them cope so what are some ways to set up an environment um to help people cope with if the wheels are falling off? Well, I think habits are really great. So I think insisting on some joint um, together time. So I guess family meals are really great. So, you know, respecting them enough to give them some independence in perhaps when they do their homework or study or whatever, but then coming back together um, if you're in a shared house um, and coming together and having family meals, for example. So you're touching base and you're staying connected for people who might be right in the middle of this and they're getting behaviour back from their young people that some of the young people talked about, they weren't their best selves, yeah. um, gosh, that must be tricky. And I wonder yeah. how you can work out that that behaviour maybe isn't normal and, it's, and it's, not, it's not really directed at you, but maybe it is. I don't know. I, I think going back to what you said before about how do you challenge your young person or how do you sort of try and get them help when they need help, I think a good good ways rather than I think a lot of carers or parents can go into that behavior management and they miss the feeling part of it um so they'll go you need to do a b and c and you need to give me your phone at eight o'clock at night and you are not allowed to go out and see joe um, <laughs> um and they miss the they miss the opportunity to talk about emotion um and that's often what the behavior is about anyway um so what I think is also really important for parents to do is, is if they're feeling like their young person can't hear them, talk about their own emotion in it. And then your young person will often, if they're actually just, there's nothing big going on, your young person will sort of reach out and say, oh, sorry about that, mum. Uh, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll come and have dinner. Or they might actually take an opportunity to open up a little bit more to you when they see that you two are struggling with them. Now, there is a part of that conversation that we haven't yet talked about specifically because it feels kind of awkward and it kind of takes us back to where we started. How do you support someone who has started to neglect their personal hygiene? Let's catch up with another Headspace clinician, Danielle Jackson. Um, something we'd call like a negative symptom. So I guess with mental health issues, you can have positive symptoms. So you have an addition of something like I'm having panic attacks or, you know, something new's happening or you can have things disappearing. So stuff like your um, personal hygiene might drop down or you mightn't be as talkative or might be withdrawn. So, yeah, it would be one of those negative symptoms. And it can be that energy factor, like things just feel like too much effort. So 
you know, for someone who's in a pretty good space, it doesn't feel like much effort to quickly jump in the shower and wash your hair and get out and do all the rest. But for someone who's really exhausted, really anxious, really depressed, that can just be too much some days. So, yeah, it's that fatigue that sometimes that goes along with mental health. Um, How do we support someone with that or how do we have conversations about that? Yeah, I think if it's getting to the point where someone's really struggling to get in the shower or, you know, prepare food for themselves or that's when you might say, hey, do you want to check in with a doctor around this as well? Because I'm noticing you're really struggling with day-to-day stuff and worried for you. So it's something beyond self-management. That's that's maybe a hint that you need to go to the next step. Definitely. And sometimes when I've been working with people and they're really struggling with their energy level, they might have had something organic going on like, um, you know, really low iron levels or they might have had glandular fever and, yeah, something that's physically impacting them, why it's so hard to get going. So it is really important to check out there's not a physical cause when someone's feeling that sluggish and, yeah, that behind in what they normally do. I don't know who you've been thinking about as you've been listening to this episode, but if you've thought about picking up your phone and sending a message or replying to a message, but you still aren't quite sure if you should, well, then maybe this last line from Liz could help. I think it's just more about um, encouraging people to do things. Um, So... You don't expect someone to do something every single time, but, you know, if you ask your friend two or three times and they say no every time, just about asking them whether there's something that they would prefer to do, you know, whether your friend can just come to you at home instead of you having to get out of the house and have some sort of interaction without it being a massive event, without having to hang out with a lot of people, Um, just trying to do things on a small scale and then work towards those big sort of events. Okay, so I know it doesn't seem like rocket science, but until we hear it said like that, it sort of is. Now, what you'll learn on our next episode kind of leads on pretty nicely from this. The words we use, the things we say, and how they might be heard by different people. A good check-in is to avoid always, never, those absolute words of saying, You're always up late. That comes across quite accusing. Uh, Yeah, it does. And there'll be more on our next episode of how to stay away from the judgmental language. My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to Get Psyched, a podcast from Headspace Launceston. This podcast is supported by funding from Primary Health Tasmania through the Australian Government Primary Health Networks Programme.